Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Alexandra Smart, one half of the dynamic design duo who created top Aussie fashion brand Ginger and Smart. For the Smart sisters, their dream was always a big vision. Yet, it was born out of Alexandra's university assignment. In this episode, Alexandra explains how, in less than two decades, they built their dream from scratch into a retail and wholesale empire, with seven standalone and concession stores along Australia's east coast, an online sales channel, and global sales through luxury website Farfetch. Fueled by blind faith and perseverance, please enjoy. Alexandra Smart, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Hi, Helen. Now, you and your sister Genevieve, you started Ginger and Smart back in 2002. You now have a number of standalone physical stores. You have an online presence. The label is in many other boutiques and stores around Australia. It's available worldwide now through Farfetch. That's a pretty extraordinary effort and achievement in a relatively short space of time. How did you do it? If you can sort of encapsulate that, you've no doubt thought about, gosh, how did we do it? Well, when we started the business in 2002, we had a business plan. So at the time, um, I was doing an MBA and decided that I was going to create the possibility of a business with my last and final submission. And back in those days, an MBA was about how to run Telstra or a really large organization. It certainly wasn't how to do a startup or start from scratch or anything remotely entrepreneurial. And so I completely misjudged this and decided to do the entire sort of final six-month project on starting Ginger and Smart. And it was everything from what sort of product we wanted to create and what the brand would look like and who we wanted to hire and which stores we wanted to be in. And, you know, in hindsight, it was pretty top level really, but it was a bit of a blueprint for where we were going to go. And I got really badly marked down and told that, you know, I'd missed the brief and should have been talking about how to run Qantas or something Really? Else. And so then, you were actually, your entrepreneurial spirit was kind of sat on by that marker, by that academic. Absolutely. But here's the irony. The following year, they invited me back to talk to the graduating students in the big kind of... University of New South Wales Hall, where you send them off with the dream in the eye, and they asked me to talk about entrepreneurialism. So in one year, the thinking had gone from an MBA, Masters of Business is about running a large organisation, to actually the spirit of an MBA is about entrepreneurialism in whatever business that might be. So that was not an irony lost on either me or the audience. Now you can get an MBA in entrepreneurialism, 
So the, the world's changed a lot in 17 years or whatever it is now. Take me back to that time because I'm trying to picture you both. I mean, deciding to jump out of your comfort zone. You had uh, jump off the deep end. You know, we're going to take a chance. You both had good, I imagine, reasonably well-paid jobs. You were in the publishing side of um, magazines and your sister Genevieve was in the design side of fashion labels. Yet you go and decide to back yourselves Help me understand that. Mm. Well, look, we were both working very, very hard for other people. Jen was working for a um, a really successful Australian designer at the time, and I I was working in actually online content publishing at the time as well. And we'd spent 10 years working really hard for for reasons, you know, that sort of have come from our background. We both have a really strong work ethic, and we were pretty much killing ourselves for other people's businesses. And I'd had a taste of a startup. I'd worked for a publishing startup. Who was that? Um, Become Media with Tim Tromper, who was formerly in magazine publishing where I'd been. And so I'd had a taste of kind of how to do that or how not to do that. And Jen was working very, very hard as well. And I guess we realised that we had really complementary skill sets. I had magazine marketing, editorial business experience, and she had design experience proper. She'd worked for Zimmerman, Lisa Ho, and other, you know, really successful Australian designers. As a designer, as a sort of a Sue designer, an under-designer. That's right, yeah. So we both had really useful skill sets for a, for a brand, to build a brand in this fashion space. And what we talk about now is it was a really a sliding doors moment. We'd spend a lot of time thinking and planning a brand and a business, but what ended up happening was that I was made redundant in the role that I was in as general manager of Become Media and found out that I was pregnant in the same month. So when I was thrown into that space, it was either, well, we either start this now or we're never going to. And I had no sense of what having a child was going to be like at the time. I knew that I'd seen... You thought, oh, I'll just fit that in, fit the child in around the business obsession, the brand uh, obsession. Well, one of the motivations to actually do this business as as businesswomen and designers was that we I had seen, especially working in magazine publishing, many really talented women go and have kids and then come back and never really regain the status that they had had prior to that. And there certainly wasn't really a thing in those days around four days or three days and work from home. It was a very different environment. So we figured, rightly or wrongly, that if we were running our own business, we could be more in control of that and we could then grow a business around families. And I think the motivation for that came from um, our dad was a book publisher. So he worked at Angus and Robertson and Collins and the ABC. And he'd take us to work all the time. So we'd be in his office and, you know, there'd be kind of test marketing books on us and Blinky Bill and other things as kids. And we'd had a visual really of what it could be like to incorporate kids and family into a workspace. So that was never anything kind of challenging or weird for us. That was kind of where we wanted to take this as a business for ourselves. So So partly it was all about let's do something, but let's do it around our new or hoped for families that were coming along. Yes, definitely. Our own children. Definitely. But, But it was also about if we're going to work this hard killing ourselves to someone else, let's do it for ourselves. It was also about, you know, we, we had a vision for how we wanted to take the skills and, and the experience that we'd had and turn it into something for ourselves. And it was, you know, to build a legacy as well for our kids. You know, our parents split up when we were late teens. And so we, I think, also were motivated by 
financial independence for ourselves. That was a really strong motivator. So, you know, there's many, many things that were driving it. And, you know, I look back now and I think if I hadn't done the MBA, I wouldn't have had the confidence to have understood about how the different parts of a business come together to create a whole. So things just kind of aligned. And then I, honestly, if we'd thought too hard about it, we never would have done it. If we knew too much, we never would have done it. So it was blind faith, blind optimism, and also, you know, a desire to kind of control our destiny as well, I think, were the key motivations. It's so interesting because, I mean, even though you say, you know, you were doing an MBA, the whole bent of that MBA was to say, go and be how to be a senior executive, how to motivate big teams, how to run Telstra or Qantas or the Commonwealth Bank, how to turn um, one of those big businesses into an even bigger organisation. Sort of that was the very much the stream and the way of thinking. So it was still an extraordinary thing that you gave up even though you were, had been retrenched. But what could have been, you know, and what had been a fairly successful publishing career, your sister had, obviously she had ongoing work in the fashion industry already, but this backing yourself, I mean, you no doubt had hurdles to get to those points in your careers working for other people. Then you start a business from scratch, from the ground up, and not only a new business, but in high-end fashion retailing at a time, which we'll get to later, which was before online came in to disrupt, but when the big, inexpensive international brands, Zara, H&M, they were all coming in to disrupt. Were you mad? I think we were just singularly focused and probably mad. (laughs) Because that goes, I say that lovingly. Oh, I know. <laughs> I take it lovingly. I think there's a there's got to be a sense of uh, madness or self belief or a whole lot of different elements that come together to allow you to do that sort of thing. I, I honestly think it was the fact that I didn't have a regular job at that time and I couldn't see my way through really being able to find a really good one that I loved that was at the status that I wanted and have kids. So the retrenchment, in fact, was a huge blessing. Definitely, in hindsight, that. Uh, and even at the time, you know, it was it was one of those things where the business was kind of going in a direction that I didn't really want to go. So it forced me and forced Jen and I to make a decision to start the business. So it, it was definitely that sliding doors moment of do you walk through the door now or which direction and is your life going to take? And we just jumped in. You obviously had been a publisher, so you knew your way around budgets, Mm. presumably around bottom lines, profit and loss statements, those sort of things. But you really had no experience at that stage of running a business. So the MBA gave you this confidence. But when you look back, is it a kind of a false confidence? Because as you say, they didn't really even teach you how to run a small business. A lot of the things that I learned in the MBA, I applied to the startup. Every day, I found myself consciously drawing on things that we'd discussed, like marketing, uh, not so much the finance side, but certainly the idea that you've got to build different departments within a business. So in our case, production, design, dispatch, finance, marketing, and how all those departments work together to create a company. For instance, on marketing, you you named that first. How did that teach you to think? Did it teach you to think differently about a customer, about how you speak to a customer? 
Well, it's interesting because I came out of a magazine at a time when publishers were deciding that marketing wasn't really necessary. It was pre-internet, really. So marketing hadn't been a very strong magazine uh, imperative, really. And then when the internet started to kind of really take hold and social media and brands being able to talk to the consumer directly as opposed through media, that's when marketing's really become such a strong business lever. And I said to somebody the other day, probably 50% of what I do now as the managing director of Ginger and Smart is marketing because it's absolutely the core focus around the consumer. And there's so many different aspects of marketing now that it, be- it becomes so much more of a big focus within the operations of the business. So if there was one thing back then or a couple of things that really gave you the confidence or the chutzpah really to do this, what were they? I think that I had confidence in having worked for a startup before that I sort of had a sense of what not to do, which told me what to do. I learned a lot through that process of where to spend money, how to put a team together, how to talk to a customer when they don't know who you are, how to create a product when no one in the market's even known about it before, how to test market. That was pretty invaluable. It was an invaluable two years to understand how then to apply that to a fashion brand. I think also we had confidence in Genevieve's design ability and the time that she'd spent honing her skills with other brands. So I think they were the underlying confidence areas. So you backed yourselves? Yes, definitely. Did anyone push you? No. Did mum and dad say, you need to do this? No. Girls think about it? Not at all. Husbands? Aunts? Nobody really stood in our way at all. This came out of both you and Genevieve? Yes. We don't come from a family of entrepreneurs or business people. Our dad had his own publishing company but he would do the odd book here and there. It wasn't a behemoth. So no, we weren't motivated by family experience. And so it really, it's really come sort of sideways. When did the dream or the idea for perhaps a dream really sort of start? I mean, that you would do a business together. Did it begin in childhood? Was it when you were perhaps borrowing each other's clothes as teens? Or did it become a, a thing at this only at this juncture when you lost your job and Jen was maybe working for other people and thought, you know, I'd like to do something for myself and the idea of um, your own children came along. We we bandied it around for a couple of years before I decided to do the project for uni. So it, it had been a conversation and we'd sort of started to formulate what it might look like, how it felt, who we'd hire and all those sorts of dream parts. And we even did when? a few, oh, a couple of years before, okay. so about 2000, probably 2000. Yeah. And we even did some, you know, we'd do pseudo focus groups where we'd invite some girlfriends over and give them red wine and run ideas past them. And really that's how we came up with the name Ginger and Smart. So the conversations were happening and we were just formulating. There was no rush really. So you were doing your own due diligence, oh, definitely. your own thinking about it, your yeah. own planning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that time, even two years before it actually began, was it a big dream? Did you think, oh, we'll have a um, a little empire, but it'll be an empire? Or was it a smaller dream where, oh, one shop, one amount of clothing that we can handle ourselves, that'll be fabulous? No, it was it was a bigger dream than that. 
We had product lines planned. We had where we'd like to open our own stores, who we'd like to sell the collection to, how we'd launch internationally. Um, wow. Yeah, it was never a start at the markets, flip it into a business kind of approach. We'd really thought through. And I've gone back and looked at the business plan. It was very top line. It was very junior burger, really. But not <sighs> much has changed. You know, the sentiment, the values, why we were doing it, who we were doing it for, product mix, you know, it's definitely moved with the times and we've been nimble and had to change over the years. But but the the central kind of focus and the belief in being able to do something differently to other people, that all still remains. So the spirit of it is definitely still there. What was your childhood like? You've told us a bit about your, your dad, that he had a, a small publishing business and that they split at presumably a difficult time in girls' lives, anyone's lives. What was your childhood like? What do you remember? I mean, were you the uh, the daydreamer? Were you very studious? Did you love school? We had a lovely childhood, really, when we were younger. We lived in England with our mum and dad, Genoa and I, with our mum and dad until I was about eight, and then we came back to Australia. And our parents had another baby, Eloise, who's our younger sister, when I was about 13 and Jen was about 11. And, you know, we we had a very creative childhood. Both our parents are very creative. Mum was very creative. And, you know, she was all about seeing beauty in nature and reading books. And dad obviously was as a publisher, loved reading, still does. So we come from a family of publishers who love the spoken word and the written word and, and art. And, you know, mum was, you know, the first vintage shopper that we knew. She would buy lots of, you know, secondhand clothes, now vintage, and put interesting looks together. And so, you know, a lot of that so creativity. So she was stylish and, and yeah. could style things. Yeah. Do you think you got an eye for that? I think we definitely got an eye, both, both of us, of from that, yeah. And and a, um, a love of fabric and texture and she she had a big silk shirt collection and, it, you know, it wasn't fancy. We were not fancy street at all, but it was creative and, and Jen was the dreamer really and the creative and she'd cut things up and put things back together and, and I was more bookish. I loved reading and so, you know, we went to school and both enjoyed school. And Were you good at school? Yeah, yeah, we were both relatively good at school. And what was interesting about that is that back in those days, we were at a private Catholic girls' school and you were either good at maths or you were good at art. And so both Jen and I wanted to do three unit maths and three unit art at the time, but they scheduled them at the same time on the timetable, so you actually couldn't. And so both of us, funnily enough, independently started to try and do both and couldn't, you can't keep that up so we both ended up doing art. But the, the the relevance to the business now is that we're both creative and we're both business focused in what we do every day. So Jen's is interested in the figures, what's happening with costs as oh, you? Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. So her role as creative director is as much refining, you know, how much fabric we're using and how much are we buying it for, you know, the production process. There's a, a lot of numbers and we call it the maths and the magic in that creative process. Uh, in fact, we get you get that wrong, you don't have a business. So it starts from that thinking around how to create beautiful product but make it profitable. And then, you know, I obviously am more involved in the finance and retail side of things, but I'm also very involved in the creative process too. And we, we, we creative direct, you know, 
shoots together and, you know, work on all of those sorts of creative processes together, but also the back end business of fashion, which is just as important. And so even now we're both using both sides of our brains, which is what keeps it interesting for us. When you left school, what did you do? Can you remember your first job? And, I mean, was it sort of into these creative areas or did Mm. you travel? Did you go to uni? When I left school, I didn't get the marks I wanted to do journalism. So I did a year of arts at Sydney Uni where I majored in photography and then I went overseas for a year. So travelled for 12 months and only came home because mum was worried about the fact that the Gulf War had just broken out and I was in LA. And we actually left LA as they were, you know, stopping anybody leaving because there were bomb threats and it was all a mess. And then I came back and got into journalism at UTS and finished that as the editor of the university newspaper and started my career straight away, actually, at Studio Magazines as a copywriter and quite quickly was asked to be the editor of Oyster Magazine. The launch of it which was an amazing opportunity because they wanted to really pick up on the Face magazine, which was really popular at the time in London. So just give us a picture of what Oyster was like for those who don't remember it. Oyster magazine was really a a melding of the Face magazine, which was very popular in London at the time, meets Vanity Fair. So it was beautiful photography, interviews, interesting articles, what's going on in Australia. And it was an amazing opportunity to launch a magazine within the independent publishing world. And it was really successful, but nobody got paid. So it was very creative. And it was a great world to be in, in your early twenties, because the best people wanted to work because they wanted tear sheets. And even now the people that I was working with are still in the industry, which is really lovely. Something like 20 something years later. So jump forward to 2002 and and this these other decisions. You've lost your job, you find out you're pregnant and you and Jen have been talking, throwing this idea for your own business around for what, two years. You decide to start a quality fashion label, high end. You had a business plan, but did you consult a lawyer? Did you have accountants? Did uh, did you have to go begging to the bank manager for money? Did parents kick in anything? Did you have mentors back then? No, to all of the above. I had a laptop that I got and a small redundancy, and we started the business from home, and we cash flowed the whole thing ourselves. So well, you and Jen and but did was she married? Was there a partner involved that um, kicked in some money too or you were doing this by yourselves? Yes. No, there was no kick in from anybody. So we- So can you remember what you actually started with? Like what dollars? About $30,000. Okay. And a $7,000 laptop, which was probably worth about $1,000. And so what we had to do because of that was to create a sample range and go to market, which is what we did. So we literally created a candle a, a fragrant candle collection, which at the time candles are everywhere now, but at the time no one was doing anything like that. And what is got, a fragrant candle well, collection a, a scented, mean? A scented candle collection. And they weren't just scented candles. They were wrapped with feathers and different colours and so they're really different to what was in the market. And we'd identified the stores that we wanted to sell in. And the plan was, was to launch a small accessory slash lifestyle range, which ended up being candles, a scarf and hat collection, tiny, and then take it to the stores that we wanted to appear in, which were the top end, you know, beautiful lifestyle stores at the time, which no longer exist, and 
from then create the relationships with the owners and the retailers and then grow it from there into fashion. So we didn't start as a fashion brand. We started as a lifestyle brand. And the reason we did that was because we could create a small collection. We were able to kind of literally put it into a suitcase and walk into a store and show them. And then if they picked it up, they'd fax us an order. And then we literally had to kind of get paid to pay for the next production run. And it was tiny. I think our first run was $1,000. So it was really minuscule. But we had to do it that way. We had no other choice. We didn't know how to do it any other way. No one was going to give us any money. And so... So you didn't want to go to banks or banks wouldn't touch you? Banks wouldn't touch us. And we didn't have anything to offer, as in, you know, houses or collateral or backing. So we cash flowed the business ourselves just by selling and being quite strict with our terms and then growing it slowly. We went to a few trade fairs when we started off and wrote orders and were just able to produce that stock to deliver. And so, yeah, it was really small and it basically ended up taking over my house because it was just boxes in every room. I was packing the boxes. I was, we did a massage (laughs) oil. I was pouring the oil. I was wrapping the candles. So it was all very, very hands-on. And we didn't get a premises or hire any staff until three or four years later. So that went on for a long time. So for the first two or three or four years, you and Genevieve were doing everything yourselves. Mm. Mm. Making, getting suppliers, manufacturing or however you did it. Mm. And how did you do it? Would would you get, you know, little factory X Mm. out in the back streets of uh, Western Sydney to make candles for you or make these accessories? Yep, Lilyfield, in fact. And I would be there bouncing the baby with my foot whilst wrapping candles and getting things ready. It was that hands-on. When did it then morph... You're laughing now, looking back, <laughs> thinking back to yeah, that time. Yeah. When did it then morph to think, we should do clothes? It morphed quickly in about three years later, actually, when Jen joined the business full time. And then we were able to put together a proper sample collection. Of clothing? Of clothing. We, we launched in 2006 with our first resort collection. And it was the same year that we opened our first store in William Street, Paddington, and we were picked up by Brown's Focus in London. We took the collection to London and Yasmin Sewell, who's you know a real influencer in the industry, picked us up to sell in what was at the time the coolest and most progressive retail store. In it's London. In London. And so that's Brown's. It was Brown's Focus, which was like the the younger version of Brown's. Of Brown's, because, of course, Brown's was, you know, a very famous oh, yes. store yeah, through yeah. the 60s and 70s. Yeah, 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 which Farfetch now own, actually, funnily enough. So that was a big kick. So uh, three things happened in one year. We were picked up by Brown's Focus in London. We opened our first store in William Street, Paddington. We actually, now there's four things. We actually were picked up as well by David Jones, and we found our own office space and started to hire our first person to help us. So that was just a result really of three years of doing it all ourselves. And again, the cash flow was still all Mm. you. Yes. Whatever you were selling in scented candles and hats was then going to support the fashion business. Mm. There was no salaries. We didn't earn anything ourselves. So we were were effectively cash flowing, you know, our salaries were cash flowing the business. That's dedication. Yeah. Well, you know, we had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work because, you know, we were putting our families and our kids under a level of stress that, you know, was quite extreme at the time. And so it had to be for something. And we've always had that belief. 
Just can you even remember the feeling of that first shop, the first day or the first week you opened? Was it was it drama filled? Was it easy? Did people just run in the door or did you think, oh my God, nobody's walking in yet? Actually, what happened was we opened in November 2006 and we took more in that month than we've taken since. It was such a success in the first month, we couldn't believe it. And it was partly a new, new thing. We got good press. The press were very, very generous to us, partly because we had good relationships, but also, you know, there was this new store opening. And so that first month was amazing. And of course, then the GFC hit about six months later. And I'd argue it had hit, already hit the mm. fashion industry um, before that. So we opened a great fanfare in November and then it kind of <laughs> became really hard thereafter for a very long time. Well, the year after, you know, the, it really all crashed. and Yeah. 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 And, and gone were the days when women were spending, you know, five ninety nine on a dress once a month. It was once every six months. So, and it hasn't changed. Really? So from your point of view, it's never gone back to those pre-GFC days in fashion sense and buying sense, which of course is borne out by the retail figures around the world. But is that your lived experience? I think on the one hand, pleased we didn't open much earlier than that because we might have had uh, a time when things were really quite easy, whereas we opened into a time when things were hard. So that was really good training. We had to really learn how to become you know, good designers, good retailers and good business people in a really relatively short period of time because we pretty much had no experience prior to that as retailers. Baptism um, of fire. Yeah. And I think the reason that we're still here is because we we became very nimble. What I mean by that is is that we opened a store on Elizabeth Street. When it started to come off, we moved. We tried to open stores in, in areas where we knew our customer was, but if they weren't, we moved. We didn't open, you know, 18 stores in three years, we took it quite slowly. We had to. And so through that process, we became better at finessing what's required as a retailer and understanding who the market is and where we should sit. And at the same time, finessing the design process and the business processes. So when when we actually went to London, we after we got picked up by Brown's Focus, we opened about 30 stores in Europe quite quickly through agents. But as soon as the GFC hit, no one was paying the little Australian designer, you know. Mm. So we got out really, really fast and we were very lucky. We got out, I think we lost about Mm $5,000. Many other people lost a lot more. So we made the decision then to come back to Australia and just build the brand here and then find the right time to go back internationally, which is sort of coming up now. So in that period or, or in any of the period since then, have you ever come close to throwing it in or come close to going broke? Uh, we have really built the business to a point where without backing, we were never going to push it forward, which is why we brought backers on in the last um, three or four months. There's only so far that you can grow a business without capital and without very free-flowing cash flow to open new stores because of the restrictions on landlords and, you know, bank guarantees and the costs that go into opening new stores or changing your technology or growing overseas. So what we've done is built the business to a stage where we can manage it 
with our own cash flow and now brought an investor in. Before we get to that new investor, the decision to go into different um, sort of products in your brand range. Now, obviously, you you started with those different products, but why bridal? Why akin, you know, another range? And have they worked for you? Are they working? Are they profitable? Well, being nimble as a business person is also about looking at your product range and making sure that you're responding to the market and the consumer is there responding to you. And the Ginger and Smart collection is uh, really about events. It's about bridesmaids, weddings, racing, work. The decision to open the Akin range was because the market's changed. We've all, we're all dressing down. We're not getting as dressed up as we used to in our day-to-day lives. Yes, for events, but for the rest of the time in general, we all, you know, are taking it a little bit more easy. And that so- price point. That's right. Is so reducing it, too. Yes. What people are prepared to pay for a more casual kind of look is a bit different to what it used to be. They're, people are prepared to spend for an event, but in our day-to-day, you know, it's a little bit less desirable. So Akin by Ginger and Smart was about the other part of her day, weekends, travel, when we're just not so amped up. But recently, we've just decided to move that product range back into Ginger and Smart because we felt that it was diluting a little bit. I was going to say, does it cannibalise your your main brand? It doesn't cannibalise because we're not competing with price point or product or, or fabrication, but it does dilute the brand somewhat. So now Ginger and Smart is one collection. You come come to us for all those parts of your day, and it makes sense. And you that idea that you can have a beautiful silk shirt with a you know Japanese organic skirt, you know you can mix the high low as well. So people are dressing, and we've always spoken about a woman's individuality. There's no trends. There's no rules. We don't define ourselves by trends at all. Our customer finds her way with us in her own way. Part of your whole ethos and vision, which isn't so much about growing the business, but it is part of your journey, has been to be sustainable, to be as environmentally conscious as possible. And I think you've even called the sort of the fast throwaway fashion industry as the second dirtiest global industry after oil. That's a pretty Mm. strong damnation of your own industry. Mm. Well, it's certainly um, become a very big topic within the industry, as it should. We've been involved, though, in this space since 2008 when we became ethically accredited by Ethical Clothing Australia. And what does that mean? That means that we made sure that the manufacturers that we were working with were looking after their staff, their employees, air conditioning, pay rates, shifts and timetables were a focus within the business. They had to be accredited themselves and so did we. And it was a massive process for us and a real shift, you know, in terms of focus for our production. So that was the start of this journey really. So then we started to look at sustainable sourcing probably about five years ago now, well before anyone else did. And that was about looking at fabrics that, you know, reduced the amount of dyes that went into rivers or reduced the amount of trees that were cut down. We have a part of our collection now that uses 100% recycled bottles out of the ocean. In fact, pretty much our entire collection is now sustainable. And that means we're using fabrics that are still beautiful in quality, but that are considered for the environment and the people that work with the fabrics. And then there's also the part around that of buying quality product that's going to be in your wardrobe for 10 years, not 10 minutes. So wardrobing is a really important part of what we do. Invest in quality, invest in longevity, invest in styles that are going to be exciting for you in 10 years' time, 
don't just invest for the season. So meaning they don't they shouldn't end up in landfill as much as many of our clothes do. And it's a massive problem for the world, but certainly for the industry, mm. do you think? It, it is. And and the way you get around that is, you know, traceability. You get around it by buying a blazer or a jacket that you're going to have forever. And then when you're finished with it, you can give it, you know, back to St. Vincent de Paul or someone. We've got a program we're about to start where if one of our VIPs is sort of finished with a piece, they can bring it to us and we'll pass it on to Dress for Success or move it on into the cycle and to a place where it can be yeah. valued again. And Dress for Success is a charity that gives it to That's women right. who need something great to wear to an interview as they're coming yeah, back into, back into the war- kind of normal life. Yeah. We talk about social responsibility though more in our business. There's the ethical part and the sustainable part and then there's the giving back community part. So we work with Sydney Women's Fund to help disadvantaged women in a variety of ways. We design product that they then sell and take 100% of the proceeds and give it back to refugee women. You've done a lot with Syrian women in Sydney. Yes. So there's a lovely um, project in Fairfield where Syrian mostly women who come here with great seamstressing skills can be repatriated into the Australian market. The project that we worked with was the Strong and Kind Tote, where we designed the bag, we gave them the materials, they made the bag, and then we sold them and gave them 100% of the proceeds to fund next year's sewing circle. And that's giving them the skills then to go out into the marketplace and then be able to feed their families. There are difficulties and challenges, obviously, in trying to make a difference either in your business enterprises or in the community things you do. Do they, do they add to your brand or are they a distraction? Do they take time away? Why do you do it? It is a fine line because anything that we do, we do with consideration and you can't half ass it. You have to commit to these projects to do them well, but we started the ethical and sustainable part not really from the point of view of a marketing campaign or a marketing project. It's become such because people now want to know about it and we can turn it into a benefit of our product, but it didn't start from that. And so it has an authenticity in the brand just by virtue of the values that Jen and I wanted to embed into the business. I think one of the key benefits for our customers is that they feel good about investing into clothing that's more higher end of the market because there's another reason to believe in it and buy it. People care about provenance. But there's a lovely trade-off really in terms of the people that we attract to the business to work for us because I interview everybody that joins our business, whether they be retail staff or head office staff. And most of them, I'd say eight out of 10 of the young, mostly women, will say, I found you because of your either sustainable position or your social responsibility position. So in a sense, it's turned out to be a little bit of a recruitment benefit that you attract a certain tribe of person, you attract a certain type of young woman who wants to build a career with these brand values. Just turning to the future, you've now decided to sell a controlling stake in your baby to Alcyon Retail Group. Essentially, they're a financial group. How did it actually feel to sign away a controlling interest in the baby you have nurtured and grown, believing that your vision will be carried on? It wasn't easy. It took a lot of uh, consideration as well. And The conclusion that we came to was that in order for us to realise the dream, we needed to bring 
backers in, and that's just a reality around. So capital backing, yeah. ability, sort of real heft and know-how in what online retailing, logistics and distribution, that's very hard to get just with the two of you and your smaller organisation. Is that what you're saying? Look, it is, and you need the grunt in the behind-the-scenes areas like production, logistics, online digital, this stuff costs money to do well. And we knew we'd got the business to a point where we couldn't really add too much more value. We had to bring someone in with money and know-how to take us to the next level. And we both got to a point in our careers where we wanted to keep the baby, as you call it, going rather than go off and do something else. We wanted to give it a shot to see if we can take it to the next level. And inspired by you know, brands like Zimmerman and Scanlon and Theodore who before us have been able to do this. So we're very motivated to take it to the next level in a very serious way. So we needed to find really serious people to help us do that. They are, some of them have been, were at Babcock and Brown before the GFC and, and that didn't end well, but they're now, essentially they are very good at finance and structured sort of deals. They have bought a number of uh, Australian retailers. Some of them were struggling. Noni B, Surf Stitch, Katie's, Rivers, Easy Buy. Nothing like Ginger and Smart. They're nothing like your brand. How confident are you that you will be able to keep going as you and Genevieve saw the vision? Confident because the reason that they invested in our business is that they needed to, if you like, spread the portfolio and they saw value in what we do from a quality and design and sustainability position, which wasn't necessarily embedded in some of the other businesses that they had. So we give the suite, if you like, a different value equation and their vision is to round out, you know, the portfolio themselves. So this was a way for them to bring in a different sort of brand product mix. We have a set of skills that they don't have. They have a set of skills we don't have. So together we're finding ways to synergize across that. And, you know, we're only actually about two months in, so it's early days, but already there are benefits they've brought to us and vice versa. If you look back now on what you know now, would you do it again? Could you do it again in the same way? If I look back now, I would definitely do it again. I feel so lucky every day to be doing the things that I love and I'm passionate about, whether that be fashion or photography or brand or business or consumer products. You know, it sort of morphs into all the things that I love into one brand that I get to be an extended expression of Genevieve and I. But if I look back and did it again, I would have a bit more fun, I think, and I'd get a bit more support, <laughs> support around children. How? Yeah. Yeah, and around family. And fun how? Well, it's a serious thing to do. Yeah. Very serious. So you didn't have enough glasses of champagne or? Oh, no, we had glasses of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more about um, stopping and, and smelling the roses as you go. Like Jen and I aren't very good at that, actually stopping going, wow, we just did this, or wow, we achieved that. So it's funny sitting here today reminiscing a little around the journey and going, wow, we did that. Sometimes I talk about it and I think it's someone else's journey. But it, So reflection's great, but being in the moment and realising kind of what you've achieved, I think is really important. So if I was saying that to my younger self, I'd say have a bit more fun and get more support. And I'd say that to any woman starting a business, you know, it's just, it's all about the people around you and the tribe that helps. 
Alexandra Smart, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating or a review. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.